Hi, this is Paul. Uh, Based Camp came out with another zinger today. Yesterday was their religion one, and today was had the title, Do More Rights Make Women Less Happy? We're going to spend a few minutes on this, but then we're going to go quite a bit larger. We're going to bring in the Verveke, McGill, Chris, Smachtenberger video again that I continue to make my way through. So much good stuff in that video. And then also a little bit from a Just Chatting live stream this morning that Luke does on Grail Country. So we're going to have a bunch of these different elements in. But I want to start with this one because it accentuates and illustrates this problem of navigation that we have with respect to trying to, to intelligibility of the big picture. I'll say it that way. So let's start here. Is Why is it that as women get more rights, they become less happy? their well-being decreases, and they are less satisfied with the treatment of women in society. This episode, what do we call it? Feminism has led to a rise in imposter syndrome. Guess why? Um, <laughs> Ouch. Ouchie. We have an increasing pandemic of imposters in our society. And, and they know our society isn't allowed to say, no, you are genuinely incompetent and you got where you were due to the, the scales being tipped in your favor. Would you like to know more? So this morning I sent you as what always happens when I make these videos like this, one thing triggers another. I've had this fascination with what videos have billions of views. And of course, someone sent me a child's video that had 15 billion views. And I was like, oh, we're, of course it does. Um, it wasn't a bad video in and of itself, but, and, and then Algo just pops up this video from Marshmallow, never heard of. And it's a it's a captivating little video where this marshmallow dude lives in his marshmallow land and uh, has a little marshmallow backpack and has a mouse named Joel and he goes to school but it's a it's a regular school and they're all you know the cool kids and marshmallow is walking around with his um, marshmallow head and the mean guys knock down his books and and he writes a, a a note to the really hot girl that lit that's that's right over next to him and yeah, yeah she ain't gonna go out with marshmallow head here and he slips and falls and even the janitor's dunking on him and goes to lunch has to eat lunch alone and people are mocking him because and even the teachers are laughing at him i mean it's it's that bad so here's poor marshmallow all by himself and you know everybody laughs at him but then he goes home and this is where competence comes in because competence is always you know competence is how women judge men 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 push each other up the hierarchy because of competence and um, so when he's at home with it with it closed, he's he's on the mixer and he's a super cool DJ and he's you know he's he's doing all this cool stuff, but nobody knows about it. And then the hot girl's gonna come to his class, come to his house and give him a give him a sorry note, which it's an awfully nice girl to it. I mean, <laughs> I know about you guys, but I know what it means to get shot down. And <laughs> not all girls are nice enough to leave a nice little note with a little heart. But she gets, she gets there and she starts to hear the music. And so then she peeks in, um, seeing him dancing and stuff. And 
again, she hears the music and she, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit of peeping Tom action here. Um, and then takes a, takes a video of him, you know, mixing it up on his, I, 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 I am so uncool. I don't even know what he's doing, but it's, it's, it seems to be DJ stuff, music mixing stuff. And now she's totally impressed. So now he's going to go to school and she's got, she's doing the marshmallow thing. And this has obviously been out a few years because you can see by the phone. Um, and now it's the, the kids who are mocking him are the uncool kids. And of course, all the, all the hot girls are sitting with him now. And it's, it's competence. It's just competence. And now the whole school's gonna gonna be in, in Marshmallow's camp because, you know, competence has pushed Marshmallow up the hierarchy and it's a marshmallow world. Woohoo! 2.4 billion views on that video of a musician that I had never heard of. Anyway, back to these two. And and some of the family, this insane graph. I love if you described it. Yeah. Um, for the podcast listeners who aren't on YouTube, I'll put it on the screen for those on YouTube. Thank you. Yes. So this is a graph that shows satisfaction with the treatment of women in society from it's a Gallup poll. So this is, you know, pretty mainstream US based polling company that theoretically has rigorous methods. And they asked US adults, both men and women, are you very satisfied, somewhat satisfied, somewhat dissatisfied, or very dissatisfied with the way women are treated in society? This poll went from 2001 to 2021. And if we're looking at men, the rate of satisfaction with female treatment went from 80% in, this is very or somewhat satisfied. So basically any level of satisfaction went from 80% to 61% from 2001 to 2021. For women, it went from 61% to 44%. So fewer than half of women in the United States now are satisfied with the way that women are treated. In 2001, it was kind of low at 61. It actually went up to 69%. And, 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 and you actually see this with other things. There's a well-being index. You see a similar thing. Yeah. Actually, there was a study that was like a meta study that looked at a lot of studies on things like happiness ratings of women and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And a quote from the study was, <clears throat> Women have traditionally reported higher levels of happiness than men, but they are now reporting happiness levels that are similar to or even lower than those of men. The relative decline in well-being holds across various data sets and holds whether one asks about happiness or life satisfaction. Yeah, so, and I'm not going to go around like defining feminism or talking about where we are in feminism because I'm not an expert in feminism and I frankly don't really care that much how we're going to like talk about it or what academics are saying, because that's not reality. But I, I would say, and I think it's like most people would agree that at least in the United States where this poll took place, there are more privileges for women in society and more preferences in terms of hiring, in terms of university, in terms of, of political favoritism, et cetera, than ever before. Like we are at a, a an all time high. Well, I mean, look at the rate of women in college compared to the rate of men in college. Look at the the, the grades that women are getting in, in high school, middle school, kindergarten, yes. you yes. know. So the question is. Look at suicide rights for men. Why is it that as women get more rights, they become less happy? Their well-being decreases and they are less satisfied with the treatment of women in society. I have a hot take. So okay. and I, and I, I think I'm correct. I'm so like, prove to me that I'm wrong because I also love being proven wrong. I don't think this is about rights. 
and, and remember, this is a question about treatment and not rights. I think that we've reached a level of equal rights, like statutorily speaking, legally speaking, a long time ago, way before this survey ever started. So we're not even looking at women's rights being affected. What we're looking at is how women are treated. And what we have seen change over the period of this study from 2001 to 2021 is a, a change in female favoritism. And I think that is the toxic thing. I think that favoritism or privilege creates entitlement and entitlement breeds dissatisfaction. And I think we... Okay, they're going to go on talk about this. It's only a half hour video. It's not very long. Expectations are preconceived resentments. But what, what was interesting to me about this is that these spirits move through our culture. Women are poorly treated. Women are poorly treated. People hate this group of people. People hate. Anti-Semitism is on the rise. Suddenly you see anti-Semitism anti everywhere. Um, you know, Black Lives Matter, that went through the culture. All of these things go through the culture. And then, of course, someone like Steven Pinker or someone will say, well, we're going to measure this and we're going to look at well-being. But they're not looking at well-being. They're looking at how people perceive they're looking at how people perceive satisfaction with the treatment. This stuff is so vague and so subject to a sense of well, how on earth, you know, which women, what women, where women, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Here's a go-to story of mine. You know, preachers always have these go-to stories, and it's Mabel, and a number of you have heard me use the Mabel story. In fact, I used it with Peter Bogosian out in London in that little video that Peter Bogosian and I made together. It's from John Ortberg's book, The Life You've Always Wanted, and it's a story of a woman who is living an absolutely horrible life in a terrible nursing home, but she's very, very happy. And the, the person who visits her is just blown away. Um, I'll just read a little bit of it. Uh, I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked very likely to respond, less likely to respond than most of the people I saw in that hallway. But I put a flower in her hand and said, here's a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held the flower up to her face, tried to smell it, and then she spoke. And and much to my surprise, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her deformity, were obviously pro um, produced by a clear mind. She said, thank you. It's lovely. But can I give it to someone else? I can't see it, you know. I am blind. I said, of course. And I pushed her in her chair back down the hallway to a place where I thought I could find some alert patients. I found one and I stopped the chair. Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. That is when it began to dawn on me that this was not an ordinary human being. Later, I wheeled her back to her room and learned more about her history. She had grown up on a small farm that she managed with only her mother until her mother died. Then she ran the farm alone until 1950 when her blindness and sickness um, sent her to the convalescent hospital. For 25 years, she got weaker and sicker with constant headaches, backache, stomach ache, and the cancer came too. Three... Her three roommates were all human vegetables who screamed occasionally but never talked. They often soiled their bedclothes, and because the hospital was understaffed, especially on Sundays when I usually visited, the stench was overpowering. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks, and I went to her once or twice a week for the next three years. Her first words to me were usually an offer of hard candy from a tissue box near her bed. Some days I would read her from the Bible, and often I would pause where she would continue to recite the passage from memory, word for word. 
On other days, I would take a book of hymns and sing them to her, and she would know all the words of the old songs. For Mabel, these were not merely exercises in memory. She would often stop mid-hymn and make a brief comment about the lyrics she considered particularly relevant to her own situation. I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain, except in the stress she placed on certain lines in a, in, in a certain hymns. It was not many weeks before I turned from a sense that I was being helpful to a sense of wonder, and I would go to her with my pen and paper and write down the things she would say. During one hectic week of final exams, I was frustrated because my mind seemed to be pulled in ten directions at once with all of the things that I had to think about. The question occurred to me, what does Mabel have to think about? Hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even able to know if it's day or night. So I went to her and asked, Mabel, what do you think about when you lie here? And she said, I think about my Jesus. I sat there and thought for a moment about the difficulty for me of thinking about Jesus for even five minutes. And I asked, what do you think about Jesus? She replied slowly and deliberately as I wrote. I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kinds who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then Mabel began to sing the old hymn, Jesus is all the world to me. This is not a fiction. Incredible as it may be, a human being really lived like this. I know I knew her. How could she? Seconds ticked and minutes crawled and so did days and weeks and months and years of pain without human company, without an expectation of why it was all happening and she lay there and sang hymns. But how could she do it? The answer, I think, is that Mabel had something that you and I don't have much of. She had power. Lying there in that bed, unable to move, unable to see, unable to hear, unable to talk to anyone, she had incredible power. Here is an extraordinary human being who received supernatural power to do extraordinary things. Here was an entire life consisted of following Jesus as best she could in her situation. Patient endurance of suffering, solitude, prayer, meditation on scripture, worship, fellowship when it was possible, giving when she had a flower or a piece of candy to offer. Imagine being in her condition and saying, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kinds who's mostly satisfied. This is the 23rd Psalm come to life. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. For anyone who really saw Mabel, who was willing to turn aside a hospital bed because it became a burning bush, a place where this ordinary pain-filled world was visited by the presence of God. When others saw the life in that hospital bed, they wanted to take their shoes off. The lid was off the terrarium. When the turn came with a catch of the breath, a beating of the heart, and a tear, there standing on holy ground, do you believe such a life is possible for an ordinary human being? This conversation between John Verveke, Ian McGilchrist, and Daniel Smachtenberger is just a tremendous conversation. There's so much good stuff in it. And and they are they are wrestling with the world and the question of Mabel and the, and the meta-crisis. Daniel Smachtenberger at one point nicely sort of walks out what we are looking at. And, and Ian McGilchrist, of course, John, many of us are pretty familiar with John, and I think John is particularly clear and succinct and, and, and powerful and straightforward in terms of 
his views on the meaning crisis and what this means. The Gilchrist, you know, he's been around a while, and any of you, if I, if any of you know anything about Alfred North Whitehead, process theology, there's a lot of process theology in his work too. And, but but they're they're wrestling with this question: Can the world be saved? But in, in the whole time, that's you, you have to sort of wonder: What do we mean by the world? Towards the end of the section, can we imagine a civilization with wisdom to steward exponential power? Where um, hmm, shall we jump in? Relatively close to evolutionary motivations mm-hmm. that you can't apply apex predator theory to sapiens and have a biosphere that doesn't self-destruct because mm-hmm. a polar bear can't make nukes um, and an orca can't kill all the fish in the ocean, but we mm-hmm. can do both. And so we're obviously not an apex predator. We're ob- we obviously are something well beyond that because the evolutionary process, having most of the adaptive capacity in the other animals be corporeal and very slow evolving and slow evolving through processes that create co-selection, creates a symmetry of power Whereas the orca gets faster, so do the tuna, and they get away. And as yeah. the polar bear gets faster, the walruses sure, get bigger, exactly. and all that kind of thing. And with the complexification of our cognitive processes that could start to do techne, and I would say, I'm just going to call it techne in general, both physical technologies and, and language, yeah. capitalism, etc. Um, <clears throat> that our adaptive capacity and our predative capacity increased rapidly faster than any of the rest of the environment, increased its resilience or sure. relative capacity. Absolutely. And so I would put the origin of the metacrisis not with evolutionary processes, but with the beginning of stone tools, right? And it's a, stone tools were a pretty slow evolutionary curve. And so then with the agricultural revolution, we got a big bump. And then the industrial, we get a big bump. I think we get a big bump in the upper Paleolithic transition. And that's my response to you, which is we get a big bump in the upper Paleolithic transition in which we seem to get the advent of the appreciation of the sacred. It goes along. It is sown into some of our biggest cognitive advancements. So you have the technology, like you said, is like this, right? And then we get this bump and we get projectile weapons. We get calendars. Uh, we get, but we also get music. We also get representational art. We've seen if. Uh, Here, here's my argument. Actually, it's uh, you're, you're making it. Okay. Humans good. have been a very mixed bag, in from a ethical perspective of the only creature that really. Now, before we get there, again, I want to point out that one of the things that has. I think people from other ages, when they look at these conversations, would say, wow, this, 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 every time we use this word, this evolutionary, this evolutionary model, this evolutionary picture, this is in the way that, in a sense, Christianity dominated past ages, whatever, uh, whatever version and form of Christianity was in that locale at that place. That dominated, that dominated the analysis. And now, of course, it's evolutionary. But now, of course, he, he's going to, okay, evolutionary. So you have this picture, we have this, we have this story of, and, and it comes with a worldview. All of that stuff is there. And that's what's being used for the analysis. But now, of course, and this is where you see this, and Brett Weinstein, I mean, Sam Tideman, Tideman, 
Tiedemann, I think that's how you pronounce his last name, has, you know, I think made this, he's the one that said it to me and light went off. This is a Gnostic perspective because you almost have two gods because we're not, I, for many, a lot, think and then talk. Something happened in the 19th century where there was a split. And in the 19th century basically said, okay, we're going to use all these new evolutionary tools for science and history, and then we're going to use the Bible for ethics. And that kind of held sway into the Cold War. And then you have the new atheists that the Cold War basically wanted to say, no, we can't use the Bible for ethics. The Bible has terrible ethics. But the truth is, and this is sort of Tom Holland's um, observation, and others have made it too, people often, that, that actually what we sort of did was money laundered the ethics of the Bible. So that, no, it's Christian free, but but anybody looking at that said, no, that's, that, that, that ethical imagination has been a con continuation of the Christian. So now we're going to critique ethical, we're going to critique the ethical um, the the evolutionary with the ethical. And you see this all the time with Brett Weinstein stuff. And it, it's almost, you, you can't get away from it because the moral imagination has in fact already been baked by Christianity in the West. And that via, via the colonial period, um, that has, Jesus has been smuggled in. So much of that Christian ethical stuff has been smuggled into other cultures. I'm not saying there weren't ethics in the other cultures. I'm not saying you couldn't find points of contact between others' ethical systems from Christianity. But you have to understand, Christianity went a long ways in the first few hundred years. And I think with successive iterations of it going through the culture, Jesus has continued to, to shape the moral imagination. And so... In many ways, the Western, the the Western moral imagination that has been deeply formed and shaped by Christianity continues to impact the moral imagination of the world. Of course, you have the Columbian Exchange, we have globalism, and a lot of this conversation is kind of dealing with the East-West tension. You have the anxieties about, um, really, about self-centeredness that we have in the West. Again, brought to us from Jesus, this bias towards the other that has led to. You know, this entire dance of Western civilization with respect to pluralism, there's so much there, so much there, but let's keep going. Scientifically optimized tortured of the most subjective suffering yeah. possible, but also the only one that will sacrifice itself for other species and that can make the... And again, the focus also on, well, the evil is the, <laughs> it's so funny that eternal conscious torment. It was just a few years ago that I heard that come in. And everybody, well, that's what hell is. It's eternal conscious torment. It's like, is that what hell is? Or is that what people with our ethical package understand and interpret hell to be? Eternal conscious torment. That is sort of the absolute, That that is the most, and again, I read the story of Mabel. The story of Mabel has power because of that implicit, assumed, ethical understanding of what great evil is. Great evil is eternal conscious torment. Conscious torment. That's the, that's, pain is the problem. As Lewis, of course, wrote, the problem of pain. The vow of the Bodhisattva, right? Yes. Our abstraction allowed us to scrutinize tortured of the most subjective suffering yeah. possible. 
but also the only one that will sacrifice itself for other species and that can make the vow of the bodhisattva, right? And it's so funny because again, well, we're not going to say, well, isn't, isn't that exactly what's at the center of the Christian religion, which is Jesus dying for his enemies on the cross? But we're going to pick the other one, the, the, the Bodhisattva. We're going to name that one because, well, then, you know, if you say Christian, you know, anything but Christian, that's almost, although not in this conversation, McGilchrist a number of times basically says, the Christians kind of did it. And John Verveke will often point to the Christians stealing the Roman Empire. And it just points, you know, all of this stuff, the scalability issues, all of these things, the Christians did it, but can't, can't, anything but Christian now, ABC, anything but Christian, but, and, and, and please do not, you know, I, I'm not, I don't know Daniel Smachtenberger at all. John Verveke is definitely not that way. Um, I mean, if anybody is is kind and generous in these conversations, it's John. So, but but that's that cultural assumption beneath it. Our abstraction allowed us to search a very wide search space. Yeah, yeah. So the most kind of beautiful numinous stuff and the most kind of horrific stuff. What I'm arguing is that that mixed bag that we have been with exponential tech near planetary boundaries self terminates, and that we don't get to keep being that mixed bag. And this now comes up to the vulnerability of if the relationship to the sacred is forced or compulsory, it's not actually a relationship to the sacred. If you remove choice, it's not ethics anymore, it's mechanism. And so there's a vulnerability in the recognition of act. And again, if you don't watch the whole thing, I mean, that what they talked about with respect to the sacred and voluntary and love, just amazing passages in this conversation were really, really good. And I'm probably going to come back and play some of those later because, you know, even the little internal debates we have here in the, in, in the corner, so many of them revolve around there because we, we always have this, we always have this sort of left-brained temptation to, well, let's, 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 turn the heat up on them a little bit to get them to comply and it's like yeah but you've always got a trade-off with that and and it's it's always contextual i mean we do that with children we form children but when we're dealing with adults you got to be really sensitive to those things and now as a culture again if i'm going to be fair about some of these other cultural sensibilities this is a big cultural sensibility that from the art conference to the based camp couple, nobody is saying, "Okay, we're going, we're going to, we're going to enforce this. We're going to make sure this happens." Actual choice and in the honoring of choice, yes. but we have to do that in fundamentally differently than we've ever done. Because if you say, "How well have we stewarded our power historically?" If you ask the other species that we inhabited the planet with, or the lower classes. Okay, and we're going to have to talk about the word power here because it's part of the reason that I read Mabel. Because what the Mabel story highlights is I really liked um, Greg Boyd used to have this this thing that he did with his sermons. Greg Boyd was kind of an open theist. Um, he had a kind of a, a church thing going somewhere. I don't know if he's, Greg Boyd is still out there. Luke will know Greg Boyd. Um, power over power under. And that's really what they're talking about in this, in this, that you need, you need a certain kind of attractional power. Um, you don't, Jesus, 
In the second coming, Jesus comes on a white horse and everybody hides their face. But in the first coming, Jesus is here with a message of love and he wants your heart, but he's not going to... <laughs> Stuff gets so complicated. Stuff gets so complicated. He's... That's the kind of power we're talking about. ...within civilizations or whatever. That mixed bag stewarded it pretty poorly in many places. But we couldn't split atoms, and we couldn't change genomes, and we couldn't make AI. AI. So the, the question comes, and so let's take AI for a moment, because splitting atoms takes G8 nation-state level capacity to do. It actually doesn't. The G8 has made sure nobody else gets to use it through the IAEA and making sure that if anyone even tries to bomb them preemptively because we don't want the power to get distributed. And yet we're distributing the power of synthetic bio and AI rapidly that is every bit as destructive to not just other state actors, but anybody in a way yeah. that is unmonitorable. So when you have decentralized catastrophe weapons and things that can create the catastrophe even by the intentionally good use, but with mistaken externalities from doing too much narrow problem solving and not enough, is this a good goal? Is this the right problem orientation? And anybody does the AI weapon, everybody has to do the AI weapon or they lose by default, those types of dynamics. I would argue that that, our abstraction capacity exploring that whole search space, the power sides of it end up, and you know, uh, Robert Wright's non-zero. Of course, you have, in, you have a selection for increased coordination within an in-group that can do sometimes coordination with an out-group that we call trade, but sometimes zero-sum or negative-sum competition with an out-group. So there's a shelling game where I'll coordinate with you when it's in my benefit while reserving the right to defect on you when that's in our benefit. And if anybody does that, then everybody's in that kind of game theory. And if someone says, well, we'll just sacrifice ourselves comprehensively, great, then there's just no more of those people. Those people are gone, and the people who made it through are the people who won the game theory thing. What he said right there, so Rod Hare, um, very close follower of the channels on the marriage crisis. And one of the things that he always points out is when it comes to the whole marriage crisis conversation, it's this, it's exactly what he just said that, well, I can, I can opt out. And once you have that, I can opt out, you fundamentally change the kind of relationship that you have, and that's with respect to marriage. And then, of course, Daniel Smachtenberger, a number of times in this video, also talks about the fact, sort of the game theory thing, that, well, if you, if you, in fact, if you, in fact, are optimally generous and you're not self-protective, you will lose and you will go away. This is... So you mentioned the Bodhisattva, but this is very clearly the point of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Now, Jesus did not at every moment act this way. There were times that people wanted to grab Jesus and make him king. Nope, slipped away. Other times that people wanted to grab Jesus and kill him. Nope, slipped away. So in other words, he did it on his own terms. And he did it um, with the, the proper con context that he wanted, which was outside Jerusalem like a prophet. I mean, he says that again and again. He certainly had, the, and he goes to Jerusalem at a particular time. I mean, it's very clear. You read the Gospel of Luke. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what's going to come. 
all of the Gospels portrayed Jesus as very much in charge of that whole situation. And so the suggestion is that this point that Daniel Spachtenberger makes isn't necessarily true. And it isn't necessarily true, again, because of sort of the, the dual universe where you've sort of got the bottom half, let's say the, the left brain, but then you've got the right brain. And they can kill Jesus' body. But Jesus the meme is a whole lot harder to kill. Now, the resurrection, of course, is then this moment of incredible revelation because the resurrection is the physical, is the physical sacramental instantiation that actually God is active, involved, watching, and has a say in this. Part of what's remarkable about this conversation, they bump into it a number of times. I don't know if I'll have the patience or the time to, I, I could spend weeks taking apart this conversation. There's so much good stuff in there that bears attention and talking about. Again and again and again, one of the things they bumped into in this conversation is, this kind of has to come from above. And, and that's sort of mirrored in the master and his emissary um, model that McGilchrist, that this isn't something that many of these conversations recognize, we'll just use, again, there, there's plenty that can be critiqued about this, this model, okay? But let's just use the model because I think it's powerful and I think, it's, I think, it, I think it works out fairly well. The, the real challenge is that we want to ensure that the left brain, I'm sorry, the right brain, I'm dyslexic and so it's, it's torment for me to use the left and right for this. I have trouble keeping them straight. The exaptation of my dyslexia for Ian McGilchrist's theory is really hard. I could really use some different names. <laughs> Let's say the master and the emissary. I'll use those names because when I do left and right, I always get them. Most of these conversations are about an looking for an emissary process to ensure the master's program. Now, that is in itself not a bad thing because that is, in fact, how the two functions need to work. But the anxiety, the demand, the insurance, again and again and again, these are all emissary modes of accomplishment. And Thea, I'm a Calvinist, you'll see this in some of the Randall's conversations that are, that are going to be coming out in the next few weeks. They're already in the membership section for $3. There you go, three, three, three bucks. That's all I ask for. <laughs> Look at me shilling, shilling my own channel. A couple of you are proud. So Vanderclay, it's been way too long since you've sold this thing. Just reading my text from Rick. It's all gift. It's all grace. That was the power that Mabel points to. And it comes from above. It comes from the master. 
And, and this thing scales. And so, and so Jesus, in his emissary-type role, gives himself over to the master. And the master gives him life again. And then the master, Allah, Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Now, again, pluralism, we've got concerns about this, and I, I, can, I very much understand those concerns. But the pluralistic concern is always sort of matched with the instantiation necessity, where I'm just going to be in love with being. No, 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 no. Being's too abstract. And if, you're, if you just start trying to rename things apart from, let's say, their, their historical names, you're going to run the problem of a lot of that historical stuff then just gets lost. And of course, there's a lot of other newer stuff that hasn't been environmentally or evolutionarily tested that, that, that the, new, the new names are now going to have to deal with. And again, this is, this is what I see happening in American culture with respect to Christianity, with anything but Christian. But then, well, then we're going to talk about universe and being and all of that. And it's like, well, okay, well, you know, that'll get you a little ways. And of course, God, Allah, you know, this is, this is territory well fought over by the Abrahamic religions. But it's always a gift. And in the conversation, one of the Brandos conversations I had today about enchantment, the key to enchantment is always trust. McGilchrist has a great piece on that here. It's a great little story. He says, you know, three things. Um, um, metal, I'll, I'll have to find it. But if you lose trust, you know, basically weapons, food, guns, food, trust. You can lose guns. You can even lose food. But you can't lose trust. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's basically saying that. So what I'm saying is that both through conflict theory, people who want to do messed up stuff with this much technological power, right. and through mistake theory, people who are just... I don't want to cause climate change, but I want to do stuff that requires energy, multiplied by the Kantian imperative of there's 8 billion people all wanting to do the same thing. We go extinct in all those scenarios, where we at least radically lose any definition of civilizational progress anybody could want to argue. I would already say when you talk about the Enlightenment, that if you ask how was the Enlightenment and how was, how was generally the narrative of civilizational progress to the Native Americans or to any of the indigenous species that you know, some of you are probably frustrated. A lot of you get frustrated with me, and, and most many of the people who have been frustrated with me are no longer here because they got frustrated with me. But part of, you know, why I keep pairing these two in there is that they keep making these similar style arguments, which is basically that this culture that we have created is self-terminating. A lot of the solutions to our problems, our emissary-like solutions. Boy, that emissary, master emissary language works a lot better than left and right for this dyslexic. A lot of the emissary-type problems have, solutions have led to new problems, and they have not borne out what we imagined that they would. This video is almost three and a half hours long, and there's 
there's there's like no wasted time in this video it's it's all really good but i'm gonna have to pick and choose because i don't have 10 hours to deconstruct this three-hour video at this point in the video about two hours and 24 minutes to, towards the end of the section the gilchrist basically gives a kind of an kind of a process theology sermon which is a which is really a beautiful sermon um it's it's a it's a remarkable section in the video that um really had a lot to it and possibly blasphemous but the, the way in which i think this works is is like this we all know pascal's wager um, pascal's wager uh, was a simple one um either there is a god or there isn't if there is a god then it's very important that we should recognize and reciprocate our relationship with that god if there is no god then it won't do us any harm to behave as if there was a god but I think there's a third possibility, which is McGilchrist's wager. And it has the first two of Pascal in it, but there is a third one, which is that maybe we play a role in the development, the evolution, the furtherment, the fulfillment of whatever is divine. And if that's the case, then once again, we have an incredibly ennobling obligation, which is to make sure that we do help that good progress in the world. So on various... Now, there's a, lot, there's a lot you could talk about with respect to that. But generally speaking, a couple of observations. Number one, what he felt, you know, his critique of Pascal's wager was, there's not enough ought to it. There's not enough bite to it. And that's, that's one of the things that haunts this conversation because the world must be saved. And part of the difficulty with I gotta be careful here because I know John's non-theism. McGilchrist, you know, his sort of his process theology posture. The world must be saved. What is lacking is sort of a confidence in the master. That the master is going to save the world. And of course, Christianity brings that in. Now, I know that, that some critique me that oh, there's not enough obligation in you. There's not enough bite in you. And, and to that, my answer is always, hmm, really? Because if you read something like the Sermon on the Mount, what we see from God is that God is both more in charge and better in charge and more demanding than we think he should be. So I, I don't think one can look at Christianity and say, eh, it's kind of lacking in demand. No, I think it's got a lot of obligation and demand in it. But it is framed within a tremendously optimistic vision that the master is well in charge. And this is where I really like what McGill, the move that McGill Christ places here, not necessarily just the obligation. But to me, anybody who's listened to my rough drafts for Sundays or my sermons or anything. It's misery, deliverance, gratitude, misery, deliverance, gratitude, misery, deliverance, gratitude. And as, um, as Ash pointed out, he says, I thought that was just this really clever trick you did. You got that from the Heidelberg Catechism. I did indeed. That's formation. That it's, it is in fact, you, you, you both have the adventure, which means there's real loss and real risk. I mean, I'm not, we're not, we're not just playing games here but also confidence. 
And, and to have both of those things together is sort of the best of both possible worlds. It's levels to do with how we dispose our attention, the role we play in repair, the role we play in furthering and bringing about the divine. We can influence things. And we may not be able to stop certain specific wars or whatever, but that's never been part of what is imaged here. The part of what is imaged here is that we, like it or not, are gathered up into something that we have to respond to. And I believe that the reason for the being life at all, and especially human life, is because whatever it is that is the ground of being needs response. It needs that response. And while it can be satisfied by the response of the inanimate world up to a point, what life brings, because I believe all life is... I, I, I would take it further and say it desires this response. And, you know, again, my Christian foundations and formations, it desires our response. And, and this is why you have, in the shape of the Bible, you have all of these, you have Moses back and forth with the Lord over the, the troublesome children of Israel in the desert. You have Abraham pleading the cause of Sodom and Gomorrah that, you know, people say, well, you're supposed to be a Calvinist, which they think is some determinist or something. If you want a determinist, go look at the modern. Why is why is Calvinist determinism a problem, and all of the Sam Harris and these people out there are are determinists, and that's okay? No, 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 no. The Calvinists aren't determinists. At least, I'm not a determinist yet. Those questions are just so complex. But the, but the point is that God desires our participation. He desires our fellowship. He desires us to be co-laborers with him. That's the language from the New Testament. And and making it making it meaningful and joyful and is, is sacred, but also the inanimate is sacred as well. The difference is not that one suddenly is involved with consciousness and the other isn't. I think they're both manifestations of consciousness. But the thing about life is that it can respond enormously much faster and to a greater extent so that things can move mm -hmm. instead of having to wait for this very slow, slow process. With creatures like us, there can be um, an acceleration of the, the... Well, again, it's you've got, even with human beings, you've got the genetic level and then you have the mimetic level. And the mimetic level moves very, very fast, especially now with the internet the evolution of the cosmos and the divine being that grounds that cosmos together. So all in all, there is an enormously optimistic, in my view, and real, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a skeptical person in many ways, but I'm also skeptical of skepticism when it rules things out that should, we should open ourselves to. And if I'm honest about my my, my thinking, my reading, my experience of life as a person, as a doctor, and so on. I do believe that the, this is the way the cosmos is and how we relate to it. And that is surely something that brings hope, brings dignity to the human condition. And it also takes the burden off us of having to solve certain specific problems. I'm not saying we shouldn't try to solve those specific problems. We must. Um, but it's, in a sense, secondary. It's, it's like the role of the, 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 the emissary is to get on and find ways of, you know, purifying the oceans. This is terribly important. But it mustn't stop there. 
because, as I say, you could purify the oceans, you could save the rainforests, and if the only reason we did that was because of our own economy and for our own flourishing, we would have lost the main reason, which is because these things are. I would say it's glory. That's what it's for. It's, it's, it's the glory of saving the oceans. It's the glory of the rainforest. They're, he's going to say, the, the values intrinsic in it. Powerful, beautiful, rich, complex entities that have their value in themselves. They are intrinsic in their nature, not of extrinsic use to us. Holy, holy, holy. This is my God number one, God number two. This is, you know, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And, and that's where you get the scale. That's where Mabel in the nursing home has power and glory and to, to the point where he who has eyes to see and so many of us don't. But yeah, wonderful sermon. Go ahead. Um, first of all, um, I share that vision in a lot of ways. Um, as I mentioned, Kabbalah comes out of the intersection of Neoplatonism with uh, uh, Judaic thought. Um, uh, but what I what I would what, what, what something occurred to me as I was watching this before about the Silk Road metaphor because John certainly means the Silk Road in terms of the philosophical religious philosophical exchange that the Silk Road afforded. But it's also very interesting that. In terms of early, in terms of the Enlightenment, a big part of the motivation for the Enlightenment that we've talked about in some previous videos has been the economic. That Voltaire notes that wow, the Muslim and the and the and the in the, in the Dutch wharves of Amsterdam, the Muslim and the Catholic and the Protestant all get along when they're making money. It's a really interesting observation, especially with respect to the Silk Road metaphor, because. The Silk Road was all about making money. The reason that they pushed through, you know, suffered all of the risks and dangers of trying to take that passage from Europe to, to China, where all the good things were, was money. And, and in fact, that same motivation was, of course, what sent the Portuguese down around the Horn of Africa and sent Columbus out to the West to try to get to China and India, which, of course, initiated the global exchange. Like to try and afford and not make, and there's a big difference. You, you don't make wisdom, you cultivate it. You, you don't do nothing, you cultivate the conditions and it has to take yes. and it has to flower, right? Um, I would like to afford something that can work at the global level that needs to be addressed here, given the novelty of the global level of the problems that Daniel has. So I'm trying to find something that is properly pluralistic. So running through Whitehead and running through Kabbalah and running through Sufism is this Neoplatonic framework. And then running through many things in, uh, for lack of a better word, I don't like the word, but the East, right, is, is, is a Zen sensibility. Absolutely. And, and then there's ways in which really helpfully they converge, but they differ. So proper yeah. opponent processing between them is possible. Yeah. And, and the idea is this could take on a life of its own mm. such that something could 
well, exact out of it, emerge out of it. That, mm. That's what I'm proposing. And mm. so I think I that's needed because we need something where, the, like the Silk Road, everybody can, like, everybody can participate in it. But, but the, the Christian can go on the Silk Road and then return with their Christianity enriched. The Buddhists can go on the Silk Road and return and their Buddhism is rich. But there's also something that's a lot. You know, and I'd, I'd say that in many ways, the corner has had that experience. Um, my Christianity has been enriched by listening to John Verveke and developing a friendship with him. Um, and his, I think his non-theism has been enriched by his conversations with myself and Jonathan Peugeot and many other Christians. And we're at the we're at the, the pluralism always has this dynamic of the one and the many and i mean peugeot of course gets at this with his his concept of you know, basically peugeot's all about the one and the many you know it's the one chair it is a chair it has many parts and we just kind of go back and forth but there has to be an instantiation and 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 in that sense even in John's vision here, the, the Silk Road, the, the Silk Road isn't itself the thing to be desired, but it's what the Silk Road affords. Live, mm. uh, like at a global level, mm. that is also affording something new to be born. I, that, I, that's the proposal I'm making. I agree with you, and, and there was nothing in what I said that suggested that it was restricted in its scope. Yes. In fact, I was talking about the, the way in which we actually have power which is not mechanistic and therefore to do with the effects of individual actions of yes. human beings, yes. but it was a relationship with, with the cosmos, yeah. in fact. And, you know, it, one of the great sayings, of course, is to live the change or be the change yes, that you yes. wish to see. And so in all these movements, I think there has to begin with one's own orientation and one's public commitments. Yes. These two go hand in hand. Yes. And you can't create... Okay, and so now we're getting down to... And the next section in this is the problem of scale. And I haven't, I haven't, made, my, I haven't made my way all the way through the video. You're, 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 making, you're making my way. Every day I'm bite, taking a, having a little bit of this element here. Um, but... You know, be the change you want to be. So now we're getting down into the, okay, well, what, what, how, how, how does this, because again, a lot of the conversations are tending to be emissary, anxious emissary pursuits of ensuring the goodness of the master. And any sense of actual, of, of I think widespread human scale scalability with this is going to have to be building trust in the master and his goodness and the master's commitment to seeing this through to its glory that we can't even fully envision. And I don't think you get there from evolutionary development because there's no telos in this evolutionary theory. Wisdom, you can't instill wisdom. It's not like that. But you can follow people or admire.
admire people or model yourself on people, we all do this whether we realize it or not. We have people that we have thought exceptionally influential and, and venerable that we we don't somehow have rules about how to be that kind of person, but we know intuitively there is this kind of a person, and we get moved towards what that is. And so, and that's 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 exactly right. And this is this is again part of the beautiful thing about this conversation. It comes up again and again that this realization that this isn't something that you're going to secure emissary fashion in people with a program. We desperately want that. But right there, you sort of have the, the heart of idolatry. Um, Flannery O'Connor has this great character in one of her short stories that thought he could, he, he basically, he could avoid Jesus. He wouldn't need Jesus if he could just take care of sin himself. And the problem with that is exactly what we're talking about here. The, the point about Jesus is not his utility, it's his beauty. You should want Jesus for Jesus. Uh, okay, I'm speaking as a Christian. and I get the complexity. Sorry, do you want to come in? Well, there's two things about that. Mm. One is, yes, there's empirical evidence supporting this. Yeah, very yeah, yeah, yeah. That the, 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 the thing <clears throat> that is singularly most predictive of people aspiring and carrying out an aspirational project, properly aspirational, not utilitarian, but I should be better yes. than I am, yes. is the degree to which they have internalized a sage, internalized a yes. role model. Absolutely. That's the thing, and that's the perspectival Exactly. Thing. And then the second thing is, mm. right, you know, what Thich Nhat Hanh said, the next Buddha is the Sangha. I think there's a way in which the role model doesn't have to necessarily be an individual. It can be a community mm. in a powerful and new way that is also something... We also need that. Yeah. I think that's extremely Protestant. If I'm, I'm so I'm gonna one of these days. It's it's out on the internet. It's already the Breakwater videos are are out. Are they're releasing them slowly? But the first talk that I gave at the Breakwater Festival in Germany is there's sort of this evolutionary process that's been making its way through Christianity. That's one way to see it. Whereas I'll just I'll just I'll just re reiterate it instead of playing the video because the sound is a little weak in that first video. Ask Now, all of the aspects of Christian tradition have all of these pieces. I want to say that right off front. But in terms of focus, in terms of focal point, in terms of emphasis, and it was interesting that Thomas um, picked up on this. Ask an Orthodox, what, 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 is, what is Orthodoxy? What is its, you know, liturgy, liturgy, liturgy? It's its strength. Mm. Ask a Catholic, what's, what's, what's the focal point of Catholicism? The Eucharist, the Eucharist, the Eucharist. Oh, Protestant. What's the focal point of Protestant? Preaching of the word. Oh. And I think we're getting to the point where it's the communion of the saints. Now again, all of the elements that's that's been there all along. Everyone has had the communion of the saints. But it's this, it's this, it's the fact that Protestants have had priesthood of all believers. Now, Protestants have priesthood of all believers, but uh, most Protestants don't quite believe that. Pastors are somehow still more important than, than others, and you have ordination and all of these things. But there's, there's something that that movement into, it has to be instantiated, again, 
Apostle Paul in the body of Christ. Yeah, and if there's going to be regeneration and, you know, tomorrow I'm going to Bristol to take part in the Local Futures um, Symposium, the idea there being that if there's a future for us, we must generate it locally. We mustn't rely on the global everything to supply us. We must start growing our food locally and trusting and using the, the contributions and gifts of those around us, not just through an abstract machine like Amazon. Now, I mean, that may be difficult, but it's a it's an important aspiration. And of course, if you know anything about Gandhi, you know, the homespun, et cetera, et cetera. I, I see that as being deeply symbolic, but that's where I lead into the other conversation. Because again, behind this conversation is the, are anxious emissaries really wondering if the master is up to the challenge? And, and they're all sort of pointing and saying, it's the master, it's the master, it's the master, but has the master abandoned us? Is the master up to the challenge? This, of course, is this week I'm preparing my sermon for Christmas Eve. And the heart and Christianity of this is uh, the master is up to the challenge because we are not, and the master sends his emissary. And, of course, I'm a Christian minister. His emissary is Jesus Christ. Now I want to jump into this video. Now, Luke's been... One of the things that I... There have been so many great things over the last six years that I've had opportunity. I've had opportunity to go to Europe twice and, and meet with people and speak in things. I've had the opportunity to go to ARC, and I was really scared. I almost, I almost contacted them the few and said, I'm not coming. I, you know, I, feel, I, feel, very, I feel very uncomfortable in, in such spaces. I like, I like being down here on the ground with randos. I like being with ordinary people, which, which means that for me, the, the thing that I so love about the corner are these little conversations. I mean, Luke in the morning just, you know, starting up StreamYard and others jump in. And here's here's another Luke who's on an early Rando's conversation, I believe. He's there with his little baby and, and he's and he's feeding his baby while he's talking to Luke and and while Chad's working on his drywall and they're on the Grail Country channel and you know and 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 this is the this is the knitting. This is down where it is. It's with it's with Luke Thompson figuring out how to do his property management and 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 not spend too many hours with all of the other randos in the in the corner talking about all of the things Luke likes to talk about. And it's the other Luke who's, if, uh, you know, I I didn't listen to the whole thing, but I believe this is the Luke the painter in Grand Rapids, and he's there with his baby. He's there with his baby. It is so precious. It is so good. And Chad's Chad's putting together somebody's shower because you know he's gonna tile it. And you know, and I get up in the morning and you know I, there's I gotta continue working on the McGillchrist thing and I've gotta uh, keep my eye on the base base you know people for a little while because there's there's some sort of figuring out sort of mapping the territory. But boy, if somebody's on just chatting, I'm gonna go there and I'm gonna hear what they're talking about and I might just jump in. And the fact that anybody, the link is right there. You can just jump in and it's small still, you know, it's only 15 or 20 or maybe 25 people watching. So you can jump in and 
meet a new person and see your old friends and have a conversation. And what are we talking about today? Because the conversations are all over the place. This is this is a reality here. This is this is hierarchies bind and blind. This is nicely anybody can jump in. So this um, has been on my mind for a little bit. So I was actually talking with Gavin this morning about this. We were talking about uh, I was. Um, when I, I went up to the Iron Ironwood, Michigan, for uh, for my wife and I to go on vacation, and we <clears throat> we went to this place that has they make these hats called Stormy Cromers, which are like these these cool hats or whatever. Anyways, so we yeah, went, that 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 got into uh, was it Chad who put that in their video? That was so cool. Into the factory there where they make them, and I got some backstory on how they made these like the story of the hat and all this stuff. And I thought, this is fascinating. And I started to become fascinated in the town of Ironwood, Michigan. <clears throat> and and so I was like, look. Okay, and now, again, I just want to, you've got Mabel, a real person, in a real place, in a real time. And part of this is why I'm a Christian. And part of this is why C.S. Lewis became a Christian, because C.S. Lewis, in the end, as after he became a theist, he was sort of looking at Hinduism and he's looking at Christianity. And you can read about this in Oh shoot, why can't I think of that? It's it's a Sheldon Van Auken's A Severe Mercy. What a book. I remember reading it for the first time. It was like, oh, oh, oh that book hit hard. This is Lewis writing to Van Auken. I don't agree with your picture of the history of religion. Christ, Buddha, Muhammad, and the others elaborating an original simplicity. I believe Buddhism is a simplification of Hinduism and Islam is a simplification of Christianity. Clear, lucid, transparent, simple religion. Tao plus um, shadowy ethical God in the background is a late development, usually arising among highly educated people in great cities. What you really start with is ritual myth and mystery, the death and return of Baldur or Osiris, the dances, the initiations, the sacrifices of the divine kings. Over against that are the philosophers, Aristotle or Confucius, hardly religious at all. The only two systems in which the mysteries and the philosophies come together are Hinduism and Christianity. There you get both metaphysics and cult, continuous with the primeval cults. That is why my first step was to be sure that one or the other of these had the answer. For the reality can't be the one that appeals either only to savages or only to highbrows. This is the scale issue. Real things aren't like that. Matter is the most obvious thing you meet. Milk, chocolates, apples, and other objects of quantum physics. There's no question of just a crowd of disconnected religions. The choice is between A, the materialist worldview, which I can't believe, says Lewis, read miracles, B, the real archaic primitive religions, which are not moral enough. C, the claimed fulfillment of these in Hinduism. D, the claimed fulfillment of these in Christianity. But the weakness of Hinduism is that it doesn't really join the two strands. Unredeemably savage religion goes on in the village. The hermit philosophy is in the forest, and neither really interferes with the other. It's sort of the menu is present, but not the stew. It's only in Christianity um, which compels a highbrow like me to participate in the ritual blood feast and also compels the Central African convert to attempt an enlightened universe, universal code of ethics. 
Have you tried Chesterton's The Everlasting Man? The best popular apologetics I know. So that's part of the reason why I love this level. Because there's a reality to it. And, and what we've had in the corner is the connection of this, where Luke is, is, is holding his baby, his newborn. Oh, I get to um, <laughs> the other Luke, Luke Thompson, is, 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 is working, is working his stuff from Peter Rollins to his orthodoxy and everything in between. And, and Chad is, you know, putting in somebody's shower and pretty soon a monster is going to come in. And he's a monster that I love, but he never likes it when I call him a monster, but that's how he is. He's a good monster, but he is, he's a, he's a big fish. Looking at it and, uh, and so this, this town has a, a Carnegie library. And I was like, what the hell is a Carnegie library? I have no idea what that is. So I looked that up and it brought me to, um, this book that, um, my wife suggested, uh, called tycoons and it's the story of how uh rockefeller carnegie jp morgan and this other guy i can't remember his name how they invented the or created the american super economy <clears throat> fascinating book because you would think it well it's about them but it isn't about them it's actually about us uh, and the things we're talking about right now and um one of the things that struck me was the first thing that struck me was this guy, I can't remember his name, John something. He basically discovers or invents um, standardization in uh, machinery. The American Armory wanted, they had a desire to, that their weapons would be able to be, um, the parts would be able to be interchanged. Um, like you you should be able to take five of the same guns out of like in all of the batches that are made and be able to interchange all the parts well nobody could do it they were like really struggling to make this happen and one guy ends up finding a way to do it and he ends up getting hired by the military to do this so he can't patent anything because he's working for the military and he gives his entire life to do this and when it actually happens, it blows everybody's mind. Like, and they still weren't happy with him, right? But he does this where they pull like five different guns from three different years, from two different factories, and they can do this interchanging parts. And it blew everybody's mind. And they called it Armory Standards. Hmm. So that's the, the birth of Armory Standards, which later went into like the sewing machines and other, other uh, machine factories. This Notice we're not talking about armory standard. There's kind of an abstraction, but we're talking about real things here. Starts something where I think uh, it starts to shape kind of uh, <clears throat> a mentality in the West that people can be standardized. Uh, okay, now no, this is sort of like the scientific lab link. Now the spirit is going to go through. And, and when it comes to the scalability with all of the anxious emissary um, anxieties, 
one of the things that oh, we, we want a spirit, we want a spirit that's going to go through because the spirit's going to colonize people. And then, and once the people are colonized, we want that, we want a good spirit that's going to colonize people in a good way. And of course, that's, that's what the religions, you know, ha have an incredible capacity to do and to, to, you know, as Lewis talks about, to, to, to not just scale out this way in terms of numbers of people, but this way in ter terms of the, the various hierarchies and the diversity of temperaments, of IQ levels, of, I mean, you want something that's really going to scale. Yeah. And um, I think we see this happening. Churches are constantly trying to do this. This, you know, they're constantly, they want the standardized Christian. And always failing, because <laughs> if you're in a church, you, what would what, what drive you crazy is that you're going into church and you're thinking in this low-resolution way that you're going to go to a Calvinist church, you're going to find all these Calvinists, and it's like, I can't find any Calvinists in this Calvinist church. And you're going to, you know, on and on and on and on, you're going to see this. Um, much to Luke's point on confessionalism and stuff like this, but it actually happens in the, in the overall culture in general, and it becomes a part of who we are as people, which is very very strange the other thing that happened that was huge was somebody was mixing a batch of soap to sell that worked at procter and gamble which was not that big at the time and they accidentally make a they make a bad batch and they couldn't throw it out and they were freaking out they're like oh my god this is a terrible batch and <clears throat> so they 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 can't throw it out so they have to sell it so they go to sell it under a name called white soap and then somebody up at the company said, well, we're going to sell it under that, but I'd like to put it up against this other brand name. We're going to call it Ivory Soap. Well, Ivory Soap outsold White Soap, even though they were the same exact soap. Now, the bit, what's significant about this is that everybody and their mother would be making soap at home. Yeah. And they ended up taking soap out of the hands of of people not just americans but people in general in the west and it became this thing where now you don't have to make soap in fact you don't even know how to make soap <laughs> <laughs> and you don't even know how to make your own clothes now like there are so many things that we don't know how to do which were common day everyday things and that's like and, 150 years yeah it wasn't even yeah it wasn't even that long ago um and it changed so in other words something whooshed and now we're you know we're all disabled in some things, but we manage other things that the people 150 years ago couldn't manage. Everything. Um, so in, in, in the process of standardization and commercialism, we you know we we lose our imagination, and you know it's I, I try to walk softly around this commercialism bit because I'm not anti-capitalist, but man. Because part of me wants to rail against, don't say anti-commercialism. That's stupid and ir irresponsible. But it's like, yeah, but is it? Because Yeah, yeah. Luke's there for it. Luke's there for it. Like, I don't even know how to make soap. Well, and here's the other weird thing. If you want to know where we have all of our television stories right now on television, they all come from soap operas. Who do you think was making soap operas? Procter & Gamble. Who sold you ivory soap? Oh, snap. Yeah. Okay, so let me tell two stories. Um, no. <laughs> okay, fine. I'm just kidding. Go big ahead. fish, big fish in the estuary here. I'd love to hear them. Uh, 
first story, my last name, Fatarachi, right? It, my great grandfather, uh, this was right at around World War II. I think it was a little bit before World War II. In Iran, they decided everybody has to register for last names because nobody had last names before then, at least not in the Jewish community. But the government mandated you have to get last names. And my... Yeah, Napoleon got it started because, you know, my last name got started in the Netherlands from the Jews because Jews didn't have any last names, so... In fact, in one van, in one family, bunch of bunch of Jews were picking Vanderclay quite clearly. Um, well, somebody picked a Vandenberg. My great grandfather uh, went to register for last names, and he wanted to be called son of Elijah. His father's name was Elijah, and um, when he went to register for that, his the registrar told him that his. <coughs> younger brother had already come and registered. And if you wanted to register with the same last name as somebody else, you had to, uh, you had to get written uh, permission from that person. So my great grandfather, who was even more ordinary than I am, um, really found this difficult, but he went to his younger brother and he said, uh, you know, I, I need you to sign a letter saying that I can uh, be the same last name. And his younger brother, so my family apparently for many, many generations has been cloth merchants. And his younger brother told him, you have to get a bolt of Fatura, um, which um, I, growing up was always told it was just an expensive type of cloth, right? Um, Fatura cloth, and I'll sign the paper. So the story goes, my great grandfather got a bolt of Fatura, threw it at his younger brother and named us Faturachi, which means person who sells Fatura. Now, for many years, I was wondering, what is this Fatura cloth? And I was talking to somebody who actually knows Turkish, and I told him this story. And he told me where Fatura comes from. Fatura is actually Italian, and which is kind of funny because all my life, people kept on telling me, your name sounds Italian. And I was like, no, it's not Italian. The, the suffix chi means person who sells. <clears throat> Fatura is short in Turkish for manifatura, which is Italian for manufactured. Uh -huh. Because despite the fact that we think of like manufactured cloth as being something that's, that's less great, the fact is, go ahead and try making your own cloth, unless you're actually really good at it. You're, you're never going to make a cloth that's, that's as sturdy and as, you know. So that's the first story. Second story. I asked my grandmother why, when she stopped having separate milk and meat dishes, we're Jews, right? And Jews traditionally have separate uh, meat and milk dishes. And she told me 
when she was a kid, she used to spend her entire day with all of the other women taking things down to the river and washing them and bringing them back. Uh, clothes down to the river, washing them, bringing them back. Uh, dishes down to the river, uh, washing them, bringing them back. And again, I mean, this story grabbed me because when I was take out your bingo cards in the Dominican Republic, I'd watch children walking back and forth with the galones, you know, carting water. I'd watch women going to the river with, you know, big heaps of laundry that they were going to do. This is life continuing today, but. And she told me when she finally moved to a city with indoor plumbing and there was hot and cold running water inside of a kitchen, her entire life changed because she no longer had to spend the entire day dragging things down to the river to wash them and bring them back. And so when some of the more modern people in our family told her, oh, we don't do separate dishes anymore. You can wash them in hot water now. It's, it's, it's fine. She figured this is like an entire different world, right? So she also, you know, she, she also changed that. So, yeah, I, I understand the, the desire to, to like, go back to, you know, simpler times and artisan things and right. But then you, I'm an immigrant to the United States. When I came to the United States, all I wanted to know is why is my life now so much better than it was before I came to the United States? A few days ago, I posted a picture of, of Jacob and I driving. He gave me a ride from Chicago. We had a little event in Chicago and then he gave me a ride to Grand Rapids where I had to go to Synod. I got my flight into Chicago and they drove me up to Grand Rapids and, you know, learned a lot about his story. And it's just, just a little short version of it. But, um, yeah, it's a dramatic story. It's Jewish family in Iran. And, of course, that part of the world has – there's a lot going on here in terms of, in terms of levels, in terms of oh, – just – we're in a period of time where things are intensifying. Why did I live – in such a shithole country and i did live in a shithole country and why is it the first day we came to the united states we went to uh i, I know the exact ralph's we went to ralph's kroger's here in california <laughs> and i remember walking into the gro uh, produce department and there were these stacks of fruit and they were all the exact same size, they looked- It's helpful to mention that he left during the Iran-Iraq war. All the same, they were all clean. There wasn't a bit of mud on a single one of them. And I didn't understand what was going on because when you go to a greengrocer's in any other country, right? you have to wade through the rotten fruit and the good fruit and the right and we have grade a apples and grade b apples and 
and they're all washed and completely, and you know, and I just didn't understand how somebody could spend all of that time to just wash all of the apples and all of the oranges and and arrange them so neatly and make sure they were all the exact same size. It just, I, I didn't understand how that could be. It was just wondrous to me. Can, can I say something about your grandma going down to the river? Sure. <clears throat> so I would imagine that this took place in a time or a period of time where labor and leisure, the lines between them, if we were to differentiate them, were completely blurred. And so in her experience, maybe maybe she, in hindsight, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. you can be like, oh my gosh, this is saving so much time and energy and effort, and it's extremely efficient and expedient. And these are all terms that we value in a modern industrialized, you know, world that we live in. But um, I do think that there's uh, blind spots where like we didn't like what, 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 what was she encountering on her walk down to the river? You know, did she see the birds? Did she have an intimate relationship? Did she know their calls? Did she could she identify birds without even seeing them? You know, okay. stuff like that. You know, like I know that that's like nostalgic and all that, but like it is. That's precisely what it is. You're, you're, you're. So Michael Schellenberger, Michael Schellenberger is. I highly, highly recommend. If you haven't spent time listening to him, listen to him. Because I, what? I think I give up on him. Well, really? <laughs> no, I I uh, I listen to a few like. Okay. Whatever, because so he's one of these guys who grew up in California as this really, really left wing guy. And at 16, he decided he, you know, he he was going to be like this green communist, you know, environmentalist guy. And so he decided to go all over the world and spend his time with the people in the rainforests and things like that, right? And he has a he has a very particular view I highly recommend actually listening to. I I mean I hear, you know what my grandmother really missed out on? Going down to the river with all the other women and spending the day while they were washing, talking to each other and being together with the, with each other. And that's why I think like the when on Bridges of Meaning, we had the women sitting around knitting. That was one of the most beautiful things that that ever happened on Bridges of Meaning. Right. Yeah. Um, and and frankly, I think it would have been much better if it was and people sitting around in an actual room knitting together. But it, they don't have to be knitting with their home with their own homespun, you. you know, uh, whatchamacallit, their own homespun uh, 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 thread like Sherry does, even though Sherry was. I don't know if you know Sherry. I, you must know Sherry. Like, Luke, I, I, this is like, this may be the first time I've spoken to you. Um, possible. 
But no, I did the in a series on the imagination. He's done lots of conversations with her. Okay, so Sherry, like she, she makes her own uh, wool from grass. Like she takes grass and she turns it into sheep, and she turns it into wool, and she turns it into clothing, right? Yeah. Which is a beautiful thing, and I want there to be people who know how to do that. But at the same time, I want to live in a in a world of fatura cloth where I don't have to. Because I remember my grandmother used to make our clothes. I she used to make our blankets. She used to make, and I loved my grandmother. And my grandmother did a fine job. But you know what? The sweaters she made did not last like the sweaters you go buy in the store. So uh, this is the, this is the reason why I bring all this up it's not to to cry for a desire to go back because i actually really like my job i like i like these coveralls that i have i you know i like all this stuff what i think the importance of talking about this stuff and bringing it up is like to remember where it is that we came from you know um and where we're going and cool. yeah and where we're going because like here's the thing i mean i think we're, we're always blind to the wild card that's out there because nobody thinks like, oh, like the power can get shut off. <laughs> really? <laughs> like when I lived in the Dominican Republic, Los Apagones were not very frequent. You don't think the power can get shut off, or at least you don't think about it. Good. Toilet I mean, paper, COVID. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of nice we don't have to think about it, but that's why stories are important, I think. To, to remember these things. Uh, it's just, it's fascinating to me because the thing is, we don't see how fast we've moved. We really don't. I mean, to think even a hundred years ago, there were many, many people in America who did not have power. <laughs> it's insane. And, and now we're just like, yeah, whatever, power. Okay, so Dave says here, like, I don't know. I can see both sides of this. I would love to have a guitar made by a master luthier, but it would be probably be like five grand. I can produce a. I can buy a mass-produced guitar for seven hundred and actually own a guitar. Yes, but this is like what's that Thomas Sowell quote, which is in my thing. Like there are no solutions, only trade-offs. Right. The the implicit trade-offs of your seven hundred dollar guitar are nasty. Eh. I would say. Eh. See, that's that's. It depends the thing. on how much you care about what kind of guitar you have. I have a. A hundred dollar guitar. It does me great. But Chad, you have a guitar. See, this you're is not the seeing the trade off. No, 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 Luke, you're not seeing the trade off. There's the, the trade off right. is no guitar or a guitar. But it's not just. Yeah, that. it is. <laughs> without yeah, without if... industrialization, you would not have a guitar. You would not have a home. You would be living like in the shithole that I was. And living in a shithole sucks. There's a reason people come to the United States. There are there are trade-offs, but you know what? There are things which are which are obviously better. That's why people come to the I United know. States. Nobody's trying. This is the dead reckoning that I I speak about often. Trying to, I I had to escape from Iran and and try to come into the United States. Uh, uh, apply. We waited for eight months to be allowed into the United States. There's a reason people move from Iran to the United States, and only it, 
absolute idiots move from the United States to Iran. <laughs> but so what if I'm you trying to move to Iran, you can, Luke. I, I, you can try it. <laughs> you, you will hate it. I promise you. Well, I don't what know. If, first you thing know what? about Iran. I moved to a, a, a house that was falling apart and that was built in 1850 that I needed to renovate in order to even live in. And it operates on a boiler that's 50 years old. And there's all these like weird things that like I'm choosing a life that is, I mean, not nearly as difficult as living in a yurt or. Uh, well, and of course, but that home is in America. And I'll tell you, I remember living in the Dominican Republic. There's so many beautiful things about living in the DR. I mean, the weather and and as many people, you know, the beauty and the culture and the people. But there are other very not good things about living in the Dominican Republic. The rule of law, um, not too tenuous. I mean, people in America complain about corruption, not like the Dominican Republic. So, you know, I'm kind of team Jacob in this in this argument. But of course, I've lived on both sides, and. And and what I what I loved about this is that the, you, you wrestle with this reality. In, in a little bit, Jacob's going to play this. Um, how do you know the fifteen hundred dollar sandwich only only takes six months? This person decided they were going to they were going to build a sandwich. They were going to eat a sandwich. They were going to grow everything. They were going to do all of that, and and that's how they that's how they built the sandwich. Um, there, there, there's a there's a great place in this video where Chad is just frustrated with Jacob and says something that's a little bit rude and Jacob doesn't take it as rude and Jacob's pretty thick skinned and um, and and then at the end Chad apologizes and and to me yeah there there it is there it is so okay we're going to we're going to save the world and it's like well, we're not going to save the world um, will the world be saved yes. Are we going to do it? I don't think the anxious emissary is going to do it. I think it's I think it's I think it's trust in the master. Now we get the joy of participation. And and what's beautiful about these these luxury beliefs that we have where to to now when I have the choice of the now it's a $7 sandwich here in California or $8 sandwich or a $12 sandwich sometimes um, get the beauty of the $12 sandwich and the, the mass produced, you know, my Columbia, my Columbia, um, fleeces that I wear all winter long and et cetera, et cetera. But, but yet, yeah, all those trade-offs, all those, I mean, they, they both have great points to make and the loss of going down to the river and the communion of the women. And we're wrestling through all of these things, but, and, and, and we have real questions. I mean, I'm, we have real questions about okay, what are, what are the trade-offs of the Enlightenment? And but but I still maintain uh, at least as optimistic as Ian McGilchrist, if not more so. And and I think it's that very particular faith in 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 the thing is being what 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 happens with Jesus. And again, part of the reason that I am I remain a Trinitarian. And I remain someone who believes in the deity of Christ, in the unique deity of Christ, is and and yet in Christianity this stuff is so subtly interwoven, you know, that um, you know we we become like him, you know, 
of course, all, all of Christianity has, has the idea of theosis in it. Now, the different branches work at different ways, but we become like him, and we are raised with him, and we were reign with him. So, But just, I'll, I'll have the links to the, the videos down here, and the Sheldon Van Auken book, and I should put the John Ortberg book in the, in the links as well. Um, but again, it's, the corner is beautiful. The conversations that we're having, that McGill Chris Smechtenberger Verveke video is awesome. It's a tremendous video. So much good stuff in there to chew on. But um, yeah, why? A couple of video, a few years ago, I made a video why I'm still a Christian, and 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 the reasons remain the same. And the reasons are these: that I believe in the resurrection of the dead, and I believe what the resurrection of the dead says is that you know the the the, the stuff that the anxious emissary is pointing to is real. But the power of the master and the way that the master works through all of this stuff is real too, and in fact more real. Um, the deeper magic of Lewis and um, the stone table. So anyway, leave a comment. Let me know what you think.